what we do here is go back, 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 back. Episode 101. I'm not doing the Spanish gimmick anymore. You know, <laughs> the gimmick's dead. Time. We're done. That The gimmick is over. We're going to go back to being, you know, we're going to be a normal podcast. We're going to count an American. Of the Two and a Half Marks podcast. My name is David Savage. As always, I'm joined by my good friend, Angelo and Lisa. As we rewatch, we live, remember, a different wrestling pay-per-view every single week or so. Every single week or so, or a couple weeks, or whatever the fuck we feel like it. Well, we took a winter break. Yeah, we took a little winter break. I know we were doing shits. But, you know, we uh, coming off of our episode 100, which was great. We had a great time. We had all three of the uh, the two and a half marks back together again. And now Jake has been, you know, banished back to the hell from whence he fucking came. Also known as Martinsburg. Never to be seen again. And we're back. Just just the two of us, Angelo and I, as we get back into the swing of things. 2023. And we are this week watching fucking uh wcw bash at the beach 1994 a big show to kick off our second hundred episodes and and many more of this podcast uh it with with a a monumental moment in the history of wcw the in-ring debut of hulk hogan in wcw ring after he became the biggest wrestling star on earth with the wwf for the previous you know what 13 years or so, um, and facing Ric Flair in a dream match that had never been seen on TV before uh, at to that point. So really big show. It feels like a big show. There's actually some decent stuff on this card, like a surprising amount of decent stuff on this card for a uh, mid-90s, you know, pre-NWO WCW show. So really been looking forward to talking about this one. What's going yeah, on here? Yeah, this was, you know, it was enjoyable for the most part. There are some lulls on the card, but that's kind of what you expect when you get, like, it's still kind of the early 90s. There's still some of that, like, not 80s style that's just the move pool's limited. But with the guys that they have here, like, this is a very high power level card with the names that you see on it. Like, Pretty Wonderful is a great tag team. Obviously, you have Flair Hogan. Steve Austin Steamboat, like you have some cool Matt Funk Rhodes, like there's a lot of great names on the card at the very least. Um, some matches hit, some matches didn't, but that Hogan Flair match really did feel, you know, main event worthy. It felt like a big event with how, uh, you know, they just they pimped the hell out of it. It felt like something right out of Vince McMahon's wheelhouse. Uh, but also during the time we've been on break, I got to see you wrestle in a real live actual match. Yes, you did. And yes, it was fantastic. You, you against the uh, rabid honey badger. Yes, Ryan Mooney. Very good. Uh, it was a good match, I thought. I thought it was it a f- you, opened the, you opened the card and it was a great opener. It was very uh-huh. fun. Good to story yeah. you told. Unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, couldn't get the dub, but hey, you know, there's always next time. Hey, you're, you're just on the beginning of your journey. If it was so easy and everyone could win right off the bat, everyone would. It's not how it works. Yeah, uh, especially because the, the the fact that I'm significantly larger than he is. So I mean, I you know, it's like next time I'll probably just fucking I don't know, just be big. Yeah, you, you know? just gotta be a big boy, rabbit Wolverine. You know, it's like, why why doesn't David, the larger of the two wrestlers, simply eat the smaller one? I fucking I should have done the tenacity and speed of the rabid honey badger, man. It sneaks up on you. Uh, Also, shout out uh, Savage Gentleman Victor Benjamin, the main event from that card following uh, two and a half marks on Twitter like you all should. Yeah. And I will send him after you to beat you up if you're not following and you're listening. Yeah, sure. Sure. 
Good guy. Very large. I drove him uh, from the airport to a show one time. Very nice guy. Um, yeah. From Pittsburgh. Yes, he is. He is, he is a Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh guy, uh, which I know I know you're a big fan of, Angelo, as you are a, a transplanted Pittsburgher yourself. Yep. Uh, but yeah, we're back. We're back in the shit, dude. We're back in the shit. We're back. The in boys the are back in town. We're back. We're back slaving away in the fucking content mines again. Uh, digging for some fucking content. Um, and here we are. Uh, WCW Bash Beach, 1994. Again, Hogan Flair, main event. Uh, Shaq is there. Mr. Uh, T. We have some truly, truly amazing commentary. Uh, like, like commentary and ring announcing moments in this one. Um, that I, that just you know, blew my fucking brain out of the back of my skull. I, there's a couple like particular ones that I'm mm-hmm. going to, um, I think you, one of them, when I mentioned ring announcing, I think you'll, you might know what I'm talking about, Angelo. There's a lot of great, co- like the commentary team on this one. It was Shivani and the brain, most of it, but we did get a nice appearance from someone later on that I will never say no to because I love his commentary. Yes. But there, again, well, just an elite commentary night. There's no point burying the lead, and I actually I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this up now because I realized now I was gonna have it as one of my marks, but I didn't I, I forgot and like I wrote something else. I'm not gonna change it because I don't feel like it. But Jesse the Body Ventura does commentary for a few of these matches. For a good bit of it, it's uh, Shivani and Heenan, but we also get Shivani and Jesse Ventura. Um, Jesse Ventura very notably doesn't do the main event. Him and Hogan had a very, very poor relationship, and dating back to allegedly when Hogan stooged him out when he was trying to uh, start a union in the WWF in the 1980s, he stooged him off to Vince. Oh! Yeah, that's a whole story. Um, Jesse Ventura was basically on his way out. It was kind of a Colt Cabana, CM Punk type situation a little bit. Like once... Once Hogan showed up in WCW, Jesse Ventura was on his way out of WCW. But he does do commentary for a few matches on here. And it is the most, I do not give a shit about this. I do not want to be here performing from Jesse Ventura I've ever seen. I am just here for the paycheck. And I'm out of here. I'm I'm glad you're saying this because I picked up on that. I'm like, huh, I wonder if Jesse just doesn't really want to be here. Because he, he had the look of someone where he's like, I put in my two weeks already. Why are you trotting me out here? Yeah. Like, Tony Schiavone has to work to get anything out of Jesse the body in this one. And it's, it's really fucking funny. Like if, if you go and watch this, I really recommend just pay, like paying attention to Jesse Ventura. Cause like, he just does not give a shit. Like nope. it's the single, like lowest effort level performance on commentary I have ever seen. And quite frankly, I really admire and respect him for it. And he got the bag, but yeah, he got, he got paid. And then a few years later, he would be the governor of Minnesota. So, fuck yeah, Jesse Ventura. And, of course, was in one of my all-time favorite action movies, Predator. So, we love Jesse the Body here. This is a pro-Jesse the Body podcast. But, yeah, uh, might as well just get fucking started here. You want to remember some guys, Ange? Let us remember the guys. That gimmick will never die. Remember some guys for the 101st time on the show. It is... July 17th, 1994, we are at the Orlando Arena in Orlando, Florida. We've got 14,000 people in the crowd. Dave Meltzer estimates about maybe 9,500 of them paid, but that's still a great crowd for WCW. 
Obviously, the big event, right? Hulk Hogan, who had left WWF the previous year, making his in-ring debut for WCW against Ric Flair. Um, I want to make a historical note. The first thing I noticed, I always go back and read the Wrestling Observer from that week whenever we do an episode. This was going on like during the Vince McMahon steroid trial, which Hulk Hogan was a big part of. Ooh. Very much involved in that. And here he is at the same time. Like, if you go back and read The Observer, it's like 10,000 words about the steroid trial. And then it's like, as an afterthought, Bash at the Beach. Oh, yeah, Bash at the Beach happened this week. (laughs) You know, yeah, this, you know, the Hogan Flair match was all right. (laughs) You know, Uh, it's, but yeah, this is like at a very, very significant time uh, in, 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 like the mid nineties of wrestling with the steroid trial going on. And it's, and again, Hulk was a big part of that. Um, but even though people had kind of largely gotten sick of the Hogan thing in WWF, him doing his shtick over and over again by 93, 94, this does do huge business, right? Him and him and flair. This was the first time that they had ever done this match on TV. Uh, and, it's this does the biggest gate for WCW show in five years, biggest buy rate for WCW pay per view in three years. So the arrival of Hogan does do a nice big business boost for WCW, at least in the short term. It's a dream match. I mean, when you think of that era, Flair and Hogan are like the two of the biggest names you could possibly have, and it's weird because it's one of those. It's it's a feud. It's a match that you don't like. No one goes back and talks about, oh, yeah, man, those Flair Hogan matches were something to behold. They're instant classics, which is weird because, like, Hogan had a lot of those moments. Not that he was a great worker, but he always created this atmosphere of – he brought the Hollywood atmosphere of a huge moment. And then when he was with the NWO, obviously you have those great angles and memorable matches because of those storylines. Flair being an incredible worker. I mean, you think that these two going against each other, it should be – it should be this – insane historical moment and it kind of is but it's not to the level that you ever think it is it's not something that's honest like revered as the way you would think considering both these guys statuses yeah it's an interesting historical footnote because rick flair of course in 91 i believe makes his way from the from wcw to wwf he comes in and is the you know big free agent signing um, he comes in with the big gold belt, and it's like the the obvious uh, thing was Hogan v. Flair, right? The biggest star from WWF versus the biggest star outside of WWF in the United States. And they put it together, and they, you know, this was the obvious program, and they ran Hogan and Flair on a bunch of house shows throughout 91 and into 1992. And it didn't really draw the way that everyone expected it to. Like you would think Hogan flair, fuck man. Like you would, you would, that, that that's putting asses in the seats. Has but to. It didn't draw at least on house shows the way that people expected it to. And then that ultimately led to Vince shifting away from that as like the big program um and ultimately flair wins the title at the royal rumble in 92 and if i remember correctly loses it to brett and then that starts brett as he you know as as hogan starts to fade out of the picture somewhat 
start to focus more on making movies and doing shitty TV shows and making fucking, you know, was Mars Needs Moms. I think that was a Hogan movie. Uh, <laughs> making shit like that. Um, that sort of ends up in part leading to Brett being tapped as the guy to beat Flair and kind of get a, a big baby face main event push. Uh, but here we have it here revisited in 1994 as a pay-per-view main event as Hogan's first match in WCW. And it does really big business. This is probably like, you know, they would face off again at least a couple of times, you know, throughout the 90s in WCW and, and you know, especially after the um, the uh, NWO angle, but not really that much. You know, throughout a lot of the 90s, Flair wasn't necessarily wrestling a whole lot, partially because Eric Bischoff didn't like him and thought he was too old. Uh, which, imagine thinking about that about Ric Flair. He was old when he was fucking bored. <laughs> Ric Flair, you know? Uh, the the special that Flair he's got on Peacock, it's a lot of typical Flair things, but he does talk about his childhood. It's real interesting to hear, like how he's like he was adopted. I like that's something that I did not know uh, ahead of time. I think he eventually met with his like birth parents, but it was just very interesting to hear the early parts of Flair as opposed to like once he got in the business because the business stuff, it, it's everything we kind of already know about Flair because he kind of lives the gimmick. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the you know, one of the interesting things about Flair and his, like, come up is the fact that he became the wrestler that he is and had to adopt the style that he did because he, like, broke his back in a plane crash. Yep. Before that, he was, like, 280 pounds, like, kind of like a power guy. He was a big hulking I, dude. He broke his – and then he had to become who he was because he couldn't wrestle that way anymore. I think, uh, I think like, he said he shrunk two inches because of that back injury because they had to fuse the uh, spine. Yeah. It's pretty crazy when you go back and think about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is obviously, again, Hogan Flair, two of the biggest, I mean, two Mount Rushmore guys, right? You know, uh, you know, for a lot of people and, uh, a dream match that we're finally getting on TV at the first, for the first time. This is probably, I mean, really all things considered the one time you get a big Hogan Flair match that sort of has the, the moment and the gravitas that you would associate with that idea. And it does do huge business. I mean, the fans pack the arena, and they are hot for it. They are very hot when that match starts. But, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the one thing holding it back, though, because this is the very first Bash at the Beach, um, that, like, they couldn't have done this for, like, a Starcade or something that was, like, one of the WCW marquee events. Now, Bash at the Beach eventually did become, like, their one of their marquees, but this feels like something that you want to do at one of your biggest shows. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and, and, go ahead. No, I mean, I think that the idea at this time was like Bash at the Beach was going to be one of their big shows. Mm -hmm. This is the first one. They had rejiggered their uh, pay-per-view schedule going into 94. This had been – they had had a pay-per-view called Beach Blast. And then they, they had rearranged some shit and then made this Bash at the Beach. But I think like – especially here, uh, they considered this one of their big four or big five. Like mm -hmm. this, Great American Bash, this is Starcade. Uh, I don't know. It won Fall Brawl. Fall Brawl. Yeah, definitely. I think those were like the big four or whatever for them, you know, at the time. But this was considered, I mean, this is like the big money match of the year right now. Mm -hmm. And it makes a lot of sense, too, that they uh, 
made this like this is the first one and you look at the card and you realize well that explains why it's so loaded up too is like they have all the guys that you could possibly want to see um not including kevin sullivan but there are a lot of huge names here it's not a fucking wcw pay-per-view in 1994 <laughs> got a 20-minute kevin sullivan match where nothing happens just it, it is what it is it is what it is so yeah um but yeah this is a Stacked undercard, some really good matches on it, a lot of good names on it. Um, very pleasantly surprised with this for a WCW pay per view in 1994. I, I do like to shit on WCW a little bit, but <laughs> really isn't bad. Um, so yeah, let's 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 get into it. Uh, we start off with this incredibly fucking grandiose like intro. <laughs> it's like you have like this voiceover guy going from the beginning of time people have dreamed of the unfathomable you know they're calling it the bash the match of the century which you know hey if you're wcw and you're booking this match for the first time in paper you're gonna you're gonna hide the shit out of it. but i was i thought it was really funny like we said tony shivani bobby keenan on the call we also get some jesse ventura throughout the middle point of the show for at least a couple matches they are promising shaquille o'neal then the star of the orlando magic he is here to Give the title to the winner. Then we get the national anthem sung by a guy named Darren Norwood, who is in a mullet and an American flag shirt. Vince would never let this happen, of course, because he hates the national anthem. I wasn't a fan of this guy's national anthem, though. I thought he took a lot of liberties with it, and it did, it did not hit. The It just did not hit. Darren Norwood uh, looked him up. Um, was actually a decently successful country singer in the early 90s, around this time. He was, like, you know, charting on the country charts. Um, retired from music the next year at a relatively young age because he's of, a, of an alcohol addiction. He said that he would take 20 to 25 shots of Jack a night. Christ. And he died 2015 at the age of, I believe it was 49. So, wow. yeah, like that dude did some hard living. Uh, rest in peace to Darren Norwood. Uh, had a mullet. He showed up wearing a mullet and an American flag shirt and, Look you know, American he, as hell. He's going for it. He's going for it tonight in Orlando. Um, and starting off, we have a match, one of several title matches tonight. WCW TV title is on the line. Uh, Lord Steven Regal defending the title. Originally, and they, they go through this, they show the footage from the WCW Saturday Night Show the previous week. He was originally going to be defending the title against Sting. They pulled the match. Uh, because Sting had suffered a worked eye injury on TV the week before, caused by Sensational Sherry dressed up in a fake mustache and a wig. Um, in reality, uh, they had gotten Antonio Inoki for an appearance on the show, mostly as a favor to Hogan. Hogan wanted Inoki there. Hogan wanted them to bring in Inoki. As a favor to Inoki, Inoki and Hogan had a close relationship. Inoki had been the first guy to really book Hogan as a big main event star in New Japan back in 1980, before he ever reached that level of success in America. So Hogan and Anoki had a close relationship as a favor of Anoki. He wanted Anoki to come in. Anoki had booked Regal. Anoki loved Regal. So they wanted to, as like a favor to Anoki, give Regal a clean win. And they weren't going to do it over Sting because it's Sting. And listen, I love Regal, but I get that. Right, <laughs> Complete, You have to understand the business, and that it's, was what was best for business. It's fucking Sting, all right? <laughs> so they they instead are doing 
Uh, who's going to do the job? Ladies and gentlemen, it's Johnny B. Bad, who is, has his whole fucking entrance where he's holding sparklers out, you know, as he walks to the ring. He fires off these confetti cannons, and the confetti's going to be there the entire rest of the fucking show. Um, will, uh, Sir uh, Stephen Regal, accompanied by his uh, manservant, I guess? Uh, Man boy. Sir William, who is uh, played by longtime territory guy Bill Dundee. Um, when we get into the ring, Bobby Heenan, in one of my favorite commentary moments of the night, compares Bash at the Beach to the Gulf War. Uh, <laughs> which, God, I love the brain, man. The brain is great. Not the first time someone has mentioned Hulk Hogan <laughs> in the Gulf War in the same sentence. If you remember his feud with Sergeant Slaughter in 91. Um, yeah. So Johnny B. Bad fires confetti all around the ring and it's just covering everything. I mean, there's confetti all over the fucking ring. They wait until after the match to actually sweep it out of the ring. Um, but this is a solid match. Um, they do some very good mat wrestling for the first part of this match. Um, Johnny hits him with a couple of Japanese arm drags, a move that I have heard described as, quote, the most bullshit move in all of wrestling. Um, <laughs> and he... He does this like arm ringer takedown on Regal that Regal bumps straight on his shoulder. It looks awesome. And Regal sells the fuck out of it. And Johnny continues to work that arm really for the rest of the match. It, everything Regal does in this match, you know, as, as a heel, he is never really up very long. Uh, you know, Johnny keeps going back to that arm and he keeps selling the arm. So it's not really like a match, you know, like typical match structure where you have like, you know, the heel get heat and have a, 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 a like a significant portion of the match where he's in control. Because every time Regal's up a little bit, Johnny goes back to the arm and cuts him down and, and keeps working it and keeps going uh, and, and, and keeps moving forward. Um, they do a like they do a spot that I love where Re, like Johnny, Johnny has a knuckle lock on him and then Regal hits him with a bunch of forearms and knocks him down. But even as Johnny goes down, he holds on to the knuckle lock. And so Regal has to keep selling it. And that allows Johnny to take back control. Just really good execution, really good selling for Regal as a heel here. Um, Johnny hits a bunch of offense, hits his KO punch, but Regal rolls to the floor. Then Johnny hits a Pescado to the outside that takes out uh, Sir William as well. Finish of the match comes. They do a spot where Johnny does a sunset flip, trying to go for a pin as he sunset flip over the ropes into the ring. Regal tries to grab onto Sir William's umbrella so he doesn't, you know, to, to kind of, you know, not go over and get pinned. The referee kicks it away. So Regal rolls back into the sunset flip pin, but then rolls out of it and reverses it into a deep folding press, and he gets the pin and retains the title. 10 minutes and 40 seconds, Sir Stephen Regal wins the match. And then afterwards, Johnny B. Bad beats up Bill Dundee, and he stomps on his, on his, like, like pork pie hat that he was wearing or his bowler hat. I guess it was, it was like a, like a bowler type hat stomps on it in the ring. Uh, and that's it. I, I thought this was a good match. I thought it was good too. I just, I, a lot of that's because of Regal. I love, I love Regal in the ring. Like every, so fucking good. Jeez. Everything he does is pompous. Like the strut around the r- ring, like well, how he walks around the ring. No one actually walks like that. No one in real life <laughs> walks like Regal hard. as he's circling the ring. It's just, I, I, I was going to say it, he walks around the ring. Like he's got a stick up his ass, yeah, but, exactly. but that's like the entire gimmick. And so it's just that much more enjoyable. His ring psychology is just second to none. Uh, both these guys, 
do a great job of the kind of like starting off slow and building up because this match at point really feels important when they're just kind of like feeling each other out. Um, again, Bad had some really dope looking uh, arm drags. It, 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 again, I'm, a dope looking arm drag sounds redundant, but it's, it, you know, they work a very solid, simple match. Um, the finish, it's a little bit sloppy. It wasn't smooth, but hey, like yeah. that's kind of like win at any cost. Um, Shivani saying, as they've been saying, wrestling is cool again. Love hearing that because you have to kind of like sell the business. But yeah, it just anything Regal does. Regal has my full attention every time he's in the ring. When we get him on the uh, get him on the show, it, everything's great. And then Johnny B. Bad, Mark Miro, always a deceptively good worker. So yeah. this was this was always going to be a solid opening match. I've always been, I feel like much higher on Mark Miro, Johnny B. Bad than most other people. I, I just I don't know. Every single time I watch him wrestle around this time, it's like he's entertaining you know what i mean and like he does cool shit that other people weren't doing on national tv at the time johnny b bad had more charisma than mark miro though absolutely absolutely especially once especially once mark miro started doing the fucking like i'm a boxer gimmick that shit sucked but (laughs) he was always a guy that was doing shit that again you weren't normally seeing um at that time and doing it as a guy who was you know not super small either i mean he he was a guy that like I feel like if he came along 20 years later, he could have been a much bigger star. Easily. But yeah, I love Regal. In fact, you mentioned the finish. The, the, the finish is like the one thing in this match that doesn't get executed perfectly because like Regal has to sort of like roll out and he kind of gets caught a little bit. So it like stalls for a second and then he ends up doing it. It's like the only kind of awkward thing in this match. Every single thing Regal does like both makes complete sense and looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just it's it's just like. Like, fuck, he was so good at pro wrestling. His you know? ma- Again, every regal mannerism is must-watch TV. It's just yeah. so it's so good. It's it's beyond the mannerisms. It's, it's like everything he executes in the mm-hmm. ring. Again, everything makes sense. And everything is, you know, executed great. Technically, he's, you know, as good as it gets. His sell, yeah, again, his selling is awesome. His, all of, yeah, all of his facial expressions, everything. Dude is just a, it all clicks. a great pro wrestler. And this is a great showing. And again, a, a match that doesn't have like a typical structure because it's the baby face keeps cutting down the heel. But it partially really works because Regal is so good at selling as a heel. And he's that, and he's the right kind of chicken shit heel, even though he's a mammoth of a man. Like when he gets in the ring with Inoki late, uh, after this, I always thought of Inoki as someone that was just huge, like six, seven Kevin Nash size. And then, and then Regal's in the ring with him. I'm like, Oh, Regal's actually bigger. No. Yeah. I mean, Inoki didn't seem, you know, maybe seem that big because he had like that kind of larger than life presence. But yeah, uh, he's a big guy, but not like insanely big. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, speaking of, we have Inoki after this. So they bring Inoki in to the ring. He, again, he's making an appearance, um, they finally sweep out all the confetti from the ring, and we have Mean Gene with Antonio Noki and another uh, great Japanese wrestler, Masa Saito, is there with him. Um, they put Inoki over really hard. Um, it's just like recognizing Inoki for being here. They give him a plaque. He received some polite applause from the crowd. I think a lot of them probably didn't really know who Inoki was. Um, and then Regal comes in, talks shit to Inoki. He says, hey, man. I just got back from Japan. He just done a, done a tour of New Japan recently. 
And he was like, hey, Inoki, I didn't see your ass there. <laughs> I beat up everybody in New Japan. I didn't see you. It's a good thing you're a retired old man. And Inoki faces off with him. He takes off his jacket, and then uh, Regal flees the ring, gets the fuck out of there. And it actually led to uh, a match a little later on. Um, one of the Clash of Champions that year that Inoki won. A very rare uh, Inoki appearance in America, especially at this, this time. There really needs to be an investigation done between wrestlers and going into politics because it's just I feel like it's a disproportionately large percentage of wrestlers that get into politics. Well, I mean, it's it's easy, you know, because you're already famous. You know what I mean? <laughs> I guess you so. Play, you're already famous. I mean, yeah, fucking, you know, Kane did it, obviously. Ventura did it, obviously. Rhino tried. Yeah, Ven- Rhino Ven- tried. Venter- Waller tried. I think he ran for mayor of Memphis at one point. Ventura successfully did it. Yeah, like I said, Ventura did it. Hiroshi became like a fucking, also became like a senator, was like a cabinet member in Japan, too. Um, yeah, it's it's happened a few times. It's happened a few times. Um, but yeah, Inoki, Inoki was legitimately in like the Japanese, I think it's called the Diet over there, the Congress. You got me beat. He um, compared it to being in, uh, compared it to being a senator. Yes, yes. Gene, mean Gene uh, goes out of the way to say that he is the equivalent of a senator. Which he was an insanely fucking famous person in Japan. For do do it also part to the single most aggressive jawline in the incredible history. jawline. I mean, my fucking god! Like, I mean, you can you can just shadow his face and just show like like the outline of his profile, and you, I I would I would recognize him anywhere. The just man would make the crimson chin blush blush. Unbelievable! He looks like Kevin from Ed Ed and Eddie. It's insane. <laughs> R.I.P. Inoki, a fucking legend, uh, and one of the most insane men who ever lived. Um, we get Shivani with uh, very clearly doesn't want to be there. Jesse the Body Torah, as previously mentioned. Next up, we got a big boy match. It is the man they call Vader. Company to the ring by Harley Race. He is taking on the Guardian Angel, a.k.a. the big boss man wearing a beret. The weakest version of boss man. Yes, the single most cursed version of boss man who is of course, is a major favorite of mine. I love Bossman. I love Bossman in almost every single incarnation of him. But the Guardian Angel doesn't work. It doesn't work for me. Um, and this is just a, kind of a big boy hoss-off um, that is actually kind of fun at times. Some stiff strikes. You know, some, some, some large men going at it action. Um, we have Bossman. I, I just wrote big Bossman throughout my notes because I don't want to. It's, it's, he's the big boss Don't man. acknowledge the guardian angel. No sell. Boss man beats up Harley Race to start the match and has Vader. Vader beats him up in return and, you know, they, they just go fucking at it. Boss man gets uh, a couple pops for some nice power stuff on Vader, who is a legit maybe four bills. Um, you know, he body slams and rips his mask off, hits him with a back suplex. He does a body slam where he holds him up for a while with one arm. Um, which incredible big fucking, you know, obviously boss man, huge, very strong man himself. Um, they trade a bunch of punches, some pretty stiff looking punches. Um, Vader does some cool stuff. He does a, a diving sunset flip off the middle rope. Boss man sits down on him, reverses it into a, uh, kind of a senton. Um, Vader hits him with a body slam, hits the Vader bomb hits his moonsault off the top rope but sells that he is hurt when he comes down, isn't able to get to the pin, can't cover. Um, 
Then Harley Race tries to get on top of the top rope and come off with something. Bossman throws him off. Clotheslines Vader to the floor. Tosses Race to the floor. Fires up on the two of them on the outside. He suplexes Vader back into the ring. Then we do a ref bump spot. The finish of the match is kind of weak. Uh, we do a ref bump spot. Race hands Vader Big Boss Man's nightstick. Uh, boss Man comes back in as Vader gets the nightstick, beats him up, takes the nightstick away from him. When the ref comes to and turns around, he sees Vader kind of, you know, having taken a few shots, cowering a little bit in the corner. Boss Man standing over him, holding the nightstick, and says, hey, fuck you, what's going on here? And he DQs him. He DQs the Big Boss Man, even though never actually hit him with the nightstick. Referee never saw him hit him with the nightstick. Uh, and Vader wins by DQ, 7 minutes and 58 seconds. Having Vader win by the Eddie special is just, yeah. there's, there's something artistic about that, man. But it's not even like, the, the, the thing that was artistic about the Eddie was because it was Eddie consciously doing that to outsmart <laughs> him and outsmart the referee. This is basically just like complete dumb luck. Like Vader wanted to attack with the nightstick and got beat up and wasn't able to do it, you know? So it's just like kind of like you can't you can't like get behind Vader. Like like the thing about that was like, you know, oh that lovable rascal Eddie we love when he <laughs> when he when he pulls one over on the on the you know on the other guy. You know, you can't really say that here with Vader because Vader's a heel and because he wanted to do the bad thing, mm -hmm. he just got his ass kicked, you know? It's like, look at this chump. I mean, Vader, it was Vader at this time. There was nothing Vader could do to make me think any less of him. The guy is just a specimen. Oh, yeah. It's really incredible. He's a fucking, he's a fucking monster. He's fucking um, Vader. Bossman is a guy for me who, whose mileage may vary. Like sometimes it's like, oh, shit, he's, you know, he's a bona fide hoss. And then other matches like, oh, he's a slob. Uh, it's just, it depends on the match. This was actually one that really snuck up on me. I enjoyed it. Uh, boss man. One thing that you really stands out here is just how great his punches are. Like yes. the guy has a great work punch. Uh, if, if you were, if you were from the South and you wrestled in and around the eighties, your punches were insanely good, but That's like just how it was, it, it, it just helps sell this fight as like two big meaty men slapping meat. That's what this match was. It lived up to that. It was fun in that aspect because they, they're both comically large men. Yeah. Um, Bossman picking up Vader with one arm is was just insane. Vader sunset flip. Like they, there, there are so many cool things about this match with just the visuals of two big guys going at it. Um, the only downside was that weird leg submission that Vader was doing that Bossman was selling the hell out of. Just very weird leg submission. Other than that, though, having two large men collide like this with a finish that, you know, it was kind of cheesy and dumb, but this wasn't a match of significant consequence. It was just two big meaty men slapping meat, and that's sometimes all you need. I didn't like the finish because it gets nobody over. You know, I mean, like, really, it doesn't get anybody over. No. Ended up enjoying this match up until the finish more than I think I expected, especially for a, a boss man match at this time. Yeah, big. If you like big guys punching each other, I guess you could do worse than this one. There's yeah, some, easily. Some, some good punches in this. Next up, some nerd tries to interview Terry Funk, and Terry Funk just spits at him. <laughs> Long live the fucker. Funk is next up in a tag match. It is okay. The it, it, it's it's Terry Funk. And Bunkhouse Buck, who is a big country boy. That's that's who Bunkhouse Buck was. 
Jake if he was three inches taller. Taking on Dustin Rhodes and Arn Anderson. We've got legend, 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 and bunkhouse buck. <laughs> uh, Terry Funk and bunkhouse buck, members of Colonel Robert Parker's stud stable. Colonel Robert Parker, who at times was absolutely hilarious as this like Southern aristocrat, you know, fucking dandy <laughs> like manager in WCW. Guy who has made me like just laugh out loud many times. Um, he is at ringside along with Two and a Half Marks podcast favorite. Meng is here, a.k.a. Haku. Bow down to Meng. A.k.a. Tomatonga's dad. Congratulations to the new, new Never Openweight champion, Tomatonga. Um, so, yeah. Fun fact about Bunkhouse Buck. He actually appeared in WWE in 2010 on screen on SmackDown as Jack Swagger's dad. Jack huh. Swagger Sr. And I'm sure... That made some, like, if there were any real true WCW heads still watching WWE in 2010, seeing Bunkhouse Buck show up probably really fucking got that. <laughs> Marked <belt>. him out. <laughs> Very happy for those, like, five people. Um, before this match starts, we also, we get footage from some dark match between, like, two, like, uh, radio idiots, or, like, it's like a... Some some woman, some female wrestler wrestling a two radio shock jocks or something. Look, Mo- like unbearable fucking thing. Molly McShane defeating the Sassy Boys, Fez Watley and Fast Eddie, who I believe I don't know if they're radio heads because the, there were two. The two hosts were Ron Bennington and Ron Diaz, who are like the managers. I don't know, man. So, I, Fast Eddie doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. I don't know who any of these people are. Is Molly McShane a wrestler? Is she was she a wrestler? I don't know who that is. Also does not have a Wikipedia page, but does have a URL link on the Bash the Beach 94 uh, Wikipedia. The show sponsored by Wikipedia. Molly McShane appeared to have been an actual wrestler. I'd never heard of her before. Um, But yeah, she has 12 matches listed on her cagematch.net profile. Um. But worked a couple of shows for WCW in the 90s, I guess. Um, yeah. So this was one of her big moments. So good for her getting out of pay-per-view, I suppose. Um, but yeah. Um, Monkhouse Buck wrestling in suspenders, jeans, and cowboy boots. Um, work smarter, not harder. Award of the podcast goes to Arn Anderson, who locks up a couple of times with Bunkhouse Buck to start this match. Bunkhouse Buck says, hey. No, I want Dustin. So Arn tags him in. Arn gets on the apron, and he stays on the apron for the rest of the match. He, t- he does not tag in until the absolute finish. So the rest of this match is really Dustin going one-on-two against Funk and Buck. And pretty nice kind of fiery underdog babyface performance by by Dustin in this one. I thought he was very good. Um, you know, again, he's, he's fighting against the odds. Um, keeps fighting back through a lot of this match. I thought he did very well. Um, hands out a bunch of offense. You know, they, he, he does get a lot of offense in this match. They make him look good. Um, again, we are talking about, hey, if you're from the South and you wrestled in the 80s, you have great punches. Dustin's punches are so good. So good. I mean, they're fantastic. I mean, he throws a bunch of them and they look amazing. Um, he goes for a running cross body, misses, flies out of the ring. After like successfully going one-on-two here for a few minutes, just, you know, move, move, move. Flies out of the ring on a missed crossbody, lands on the floor. 
um, gets covered in Johnny B. Bad's confetti, which they had just swept on the ring with <laughs> all over the floor, and he just gets covered in it. And they get heat on Dustin for a while. Um, eventually, Dustin starts fighting out of the heel, the heel corner, hands out a couple back body drops, hits the big dusty elbow on Funk, clotheslines uh, the two of them out of the ring. You're like waiting for him to tag Arn in and get the hot tag to Arn, and he never does. He never tries to tag in Arn. Still, you know, keeps handing out all these moves. He throws Buck off of the top rope into Funk. He gives Colonel Robert Parker a punch for good measure. Finally, after like, again, over 10 full minutes of Dustin in this match going one on two, he finally tags an arm. And arm gets in the ring and turns around and hits his partner with <laughs> the ET. And he puts Terry Funk on top of Dustin. And Funk pins Dustin to win the match. 11 minutes and 15 seconds. Arn has turned heel and joined the stud stable. Afterwards, three on one, they beat up Dustin Rhodes until eventually guys come in from the back and settle things down. And that's it. Dustin Rhodes has been betrayed by Arn. What the fuck? I love this match for the story it told because this is probably the best story uh, of of the card because they, they they do a great job of painting the picture of Dustin being this fiery young uh, baby face who's starting to learn the rules of the trade so to speak um, and going one of the rules of the trade his dad was Dusty Rhodes but he's the young gun he, he he's still he's still green uh, no oh, yeah, I, yeah. He's, he's about he's about twenty five in this match yeah I think. so they they tell that story fantastically. Uh, Dustin, like coming out like with like a ball of fire, um, throwing people over the top rope with the ref not looking again. The dumbest DQ rule that was that has ever been conceived. Um, there are moment there are moments where like the young brashness uh, put him over his head when he's getting that heat segment, and then he gets a nice quiet fire up, and you're and when he's fired up, you're like, okay, here we go. Here's the arm tag. Here's the arm tag, and it doesn't come, and you're just waiting for it to come, and you're like. Man, why isn't he tagged Arn in yet? Why isn't he tagged Arn in yet? Yeah. And then he tags like, in Arn. And then Arn just hits that perfect picture perfect DDT. Uh, and you're just asking yourself, why, Arn? Why? Why, Arn? Why? Why did you do this to Dustin? But I again I love the story that they told here. It was a fantastic match. Um Flair putting over Arn later. Also really good. Again, Arn Anderson, a guy that everyone knows but never really he was never the star. He was always the uh, he's like the always the bridesmaid, never a bride. But like that man is just uh, you can never mistake him for anything other than a professional wrestler. Yeah, and I, for that, and that's why I like about Arn Anderson. Yeah, that's what everyone loves about Arn Anderson because he was just he was he was the fucking guy, you know. Um, he was good at everything. Always worked his ass off, and you know was tremendous in the ring. Well, always worked his ass off except for tonight, where he's in the ring for a total of about thirty five seconds. Um, again, work smarter, not harder. Work goes to Arn. Yeah, I, I, I did enjoy this match. Um, and the story of like, cause you know, logically you're watching it and you're thinking, okay, like as, as a, as a wrestling fan, you're trained to wait for the baby face to get the hot tag to Arn, right? You're, you're waiting for Dustin to get the hot tag to Arn. You know, he gets beaten up. It's, it's a very good, again, underdog fiery baby face performance from Dustin. And, you know, I love watching Funk, and Funk does a great job in this match. I love him. He's one of my favorite—one of my favorite guys to watch sell ever is Terry Funk. But um, 
it's 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 like you're waiting for it and waiting for it and waiting for it and it's like you have plenty of opportunities it seems like to do it and he doesn't do it and it kind of makes sense because yeah the same story of like yeah well dustin's a young and experienced guy and he's trying to do everything and trying to do too much you know that it's it's delaying you know he, he wants to keep going and keep going and it's like no just get out of the fucking ring he wants um, to prove himself yeah it, it makes sense a little bit but yeah you know it's um it is what it is you know it, it's 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 a good match it's i think an effective heel turn for arn because it is it is kind of surprising you're like okay here comes the hot tag now here comes arn and arn's gonna fucking you know Arn's gonna do, it. and then oh shit, no! Arn, like it completely cut, leaves you cold as shit, you know? It's out of it's nowhere. Like, yeah, he tags him in, and the fans are like, "All right, here comes the hot tag. Let's go, double A!" And then, oh no, now the match. Bang, is dead. You know, it is kind of like it's a subversion of what you expect, which is why it's kind of fun. But sometimes this sort of works. Yeah, um, I think this could have been like four minutes like shorter it probably could have what they were gonna do it really did like if this is what they were gonna do they didn't need the heat on dustin to be that long probably but whatever you know it's it, it's fine it's a decent match um the one thing i've always found funny is that they continually throughout his entire career build arn from minnesota uh when he was from like you know georgia and he'd probably never been to Minnesota in his life before he became a wrestler. It was just because he looked like Ole Anderson. And Ole Anderson was from Minnesota. And they were like, hey, you're his brother. Uh, <laughs> now, for the rest of his career, Arn Anderson is from Minnesota. Uh, I, I just, I love that. That's like a funny little wrestling thing that I really enjoy. That's good. Uh, we have an interview. We got some A-list celebs here. Hank Aaron, the home run king who just the year before had played a vital role in Bill Watts getting fired as the head of WCW's, uh, like, you know, on-screen product because someone found a, uh, like a, it's like an old interview of Bill Watts's where he said a bunch of racist shit and then Hank Aaron had a, like, a, a high-up, like, like an actual, like, high-up position at, like, TBS or whatever, at, like, Turner Television. And, like, Hank Aaron propounded about this and was like, hey, man, you got to get this Bill Watts guy out of here. And then that's what happened. But, like, Hank Aaron, who himself, the year before, had played an actual tangible uh, role in in the history of WCW, uh, is here at ringside. Um, we had a brief little interview with him with uh, Tony Schiavone at the time. The home run king, Hank Aaron, in some people's minds, still the home run king. And uh, Hank Aaron says he is rooting for both Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan tonight, which company man work, but all right, hammer and Hank, you do you, we get a Ric Flair promo, really good one. Um, he first off uh, talks shit to Dustin. He says, Dustin Rhodes, what you going to do when double a runs wild on you? <laughs> um, and, you know, he cuts the promo on, uh, you know, Hogan says tonight, the immortal one becomes history. It's also got the great sensational Sherry. As his uh, manager, she says, Hulk Hogan, his career's failing. Tonight, he has to beat the man to beat him. Next up, probably the match of the night. Match of the night, definitely on paper. And match of the night, when you actually watch it, this match delivers, I think, at a very high level. It is U.S. title. The champion, stunning Steve Austin, who still has hair, 
but you can tell the hairline starting to recede somewhat, defending the title against an all-time in-ring legend, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, comes to the ring wearing, like, dragon wings and carrying a lit torch, uh, which, hope oh, they put that out. Um, so, uh, I almost called him Stone Cold Steve Austin. Stunning Steve <laughs> Austin has trunks that say Dragon Slayer on them, which Seth Rollins stealing Stone Cold's gimmick. Um, we have... I thought Daniel Garcia was also the Dragon Slayer. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Daniel Garcia's doing that. I was thinking of, like, Rollins doing, like, the fucking Beast Slayer shit after he beat Brock or whatever. But yeah, no, yeah, fucking Daniel Garcia is doing that too. Man. Um, Daniel Garcia, shameless gimmick thief. Shameless. Shameless. Disgusting. Um, so yeah, Austin jumps Steamboat right off the bell. He starts working the leg, but Steamboat gets a really nice long shine in this one. He looks fucking great. Um, hits a bunch of cool moves. He hits him with the Undertaker old school. He hits the like Okada drop kick where Austin's like sitting on the top rope and he drop kicks him to the floor. Um, lights him up with chops. Austin eventually goes back after the knee, takes control of the match, bumps Steamboat around everywhere. Uh, Steamboat ends up rolling to the floor. He suplexes him back into the ring. Um, Steamboat eventually takes back control. He slips behind him on a suplex, gets him up into like a choke bomb type move, and then goes back to work on the arm for a while. Um, Austin comes back with a big spine buster, hits a diving knee drop off the top rope, Swinging neckbreaker still gets heat for a while. Steamboat ends up reversing him and hitting him with what was Austin's finisher at the time before he started using the Stone Cold uh, Stone Cold Stunner. He had his finisher, the Stun Gun, which was like a like a like a hot shot into the top rope. He hits Austin with his own finisher, throws Austin into the post, hits a diving axe hand off the top rope. Bunch of great looking punches, a uh, bunch of big chops. We get to this point in the match towards the end where Steamboat is really in control and Austin kind of out of desperation starts trying to throw Steamboat over the top rope to the floor, which would have been a DQ in the WCW rule set of the time. But Steamboat keeps hanging on. He hangs on. He skins the cat back into the ring. He does this a couple of times. They um, they do this awesome, the, the tombstone reversal spot. Oh, my gosh. Like, this was insane. Steamboat, they, they do this. You've seen this spot before. Um, where like Steamboat gets him up and is holding him upside down for the like a tombstone pile driver, and then they lean back, and then Austin ends up you know in the same position except reverse. They do this like three times in a row. I've never seen it look that fluid in my life. It was amazing. Um, and then eventually Steamboat hits the tombstone for a big near fall. Um, so Steamboat goes for a top rope diving axe handle. Austin tries to throw the ref into the way. Um, nobody gets hit, but the ref is about to DQ Austin for putting his hands on him and trying to, you know, trying to get him hurt here. Um, Steamboat stops him. Steamboat like per- physically prevents the ref from, from calling for the bell to be wrong. And the ref ends up letting the match continue. Uh, the finish of the match comes right after this. Steamboat hits the ropes. It's a running cross body, but Austin rolls through and gets the pin with his feet on the ropes and retains the title 20 minutes and 10 seconds. A match that was never stopped moving for 20 minutes. Uh, both guys got a lot of offense. Everything they did looked good, and these guys had really good chemistry. 
Yeah, everything was great. There's, I, I mostly, I felt like it went five minutes too long. To be honest, uh, there's a spot. There's a very long rest spot with an arm bar uh, by the dragon that uh, started to take me out of it. And then there's a lot of like those weird rapid near falls. I just there are times and places where I enjoy the rapid near falls. This was not one of them. But everything else in this match was super fun. This was really good. The crowd was super hot. Like when was the last time you heard a pop like that for a sleeper hold? Um, yeah, they these two guys. I, it it didn't seem like a match that had a lot of heat to start, and then the the work was so good that it got the crowd. In. It did. Um, the choke slam power bomb by Steamboat. That's like a move you typically only see giants use, and Steamboat's just pulling this out. La di da. Uh, the stun gun ca- on Steve Austin was again just something you love seeing happen to heels. Uh, the pile drive. Good move, but I just – I never – you know, Austin used that as a finisher for a while. I never bought it as a finisher. You know what I mean? It doesn't look right for a finisher. It's like a, maybe a good – it's like a good heel move, but not a finisher. Uh, the pile driver counters were, again, super entertaining. That, that was so good. Part of the, the match to me because I have never seen – I've seen every – like, you know, you've seen that spot before. I've never seen it in my life done that No. Well. And – Arguably, that was that's probably the spot, the best spot we've had from like these early '90s pay per views. I would put it up there. It was really good. That's fucking gorgeous, man. And then the finish too, like the finish coming out of nowhere like that. Now they were building up to it, but it did kind of feel kind of out of nowhere. Um, and the, it it did it did validate the match going long because you're just like, oh, this is an endurance match, and then he just stole it. Uh, out of nowhere, I thought that was a really useful, uh, a really good tool. But yeah, yeah this, it, it, it was a great worked match. It just felt a little long. Yeah, it, it, I feel like a lot of steamboat matches were kind of like that, where it's like you get some like a pretty long runtime, and there's a lot of action, and then the finish kind of ends up being like just a little bit out of nowhere, and you're just like you know you kind of you kind of come away with the feeling of like. Both of these guys were like way up here on a high level and mm-hmm. on either way. You know what I mean? And yeah, like, exactly. Damn, damn, it was a good match, you know? And that's, that's like the feeling I get here. You know, Austin is a guy who, so, so often we, you know, we remember him as stone cold, right? You know, that's obviously his iconic character. He's one of the biggest stars ever in the history of wrestling. Um, and he settled into a certain style where it was like, yeah, he had five moves that he did, and that was it. But he was one of the best brawlers, like just pure brawlers that we've you know seen, right? He was able to have great matches with just these five moves. But you know, it's easy to forget that he had a whole career before that, right? Where he was one of his one of his calling cards was that he was a terrific worker. He changed who he was in the ring. After, you know, he broke his neck in the match with Owen in 97. But, you know, before that, he was really considered a top caliber technical worker. I'd say and, it's it's a testament to how good he is in the ring and how yeah. his mind works that he was able to do that after he broke his neck. Yeah, that he was able to completely reinvent himself in that way and still be an excellent worker and have a lot of memorable matches despite the fact that, you know, he – you know, was much more limited. And the fact that, like, yeah, he didn't have any knees left and, you know, his neck was broken and all this shit. But it's fun to watch him 
in the early, you know, in the early nineties, especially, I really enjoy watching them in the ring, especially WCW because, you know, it's, it's, it's a different version of Austin who is a really, you know, again, really, really good worker. And this is, you know, I would say at this point, you know, two of the best workers who were on TV, you know, mm-hmm. that, that you would see anywhere if you were a wrestling fan, that you could actually like go and see these are two of the best guys. You give them 20 minutes and let them fucking go out there and, and rip it. And they had a really good one. I think it's a test. Really like this match. I think it's a testament to that. Look at Steve Austin's match last year with Kevin Owens, like 20 years out of the ring. And he like, that was a captivating match. Yeah. And then incredibly fucking captivating. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll forget, like we'll remember the entirety of it for the rest of my life. And I'm like, that says so much about KO because he was the guy that they put in that spot. Be like, Hey, you're wrestling this fucking 58 year old guy who hasn't wrestled in 17 years or whatever the fuck it is. And he's broken. This is, yeah, his body is like destroyed. You know, you got to find a way to make this work. Right. And it's such a testament to how great Kevin Owens is that a, he would be the guy that they would put in that spot. They would trust in that spot. And B that ended up being such a good match, but also stone cold was there for it. You know, like Stone Cold didn't look like some fucking hobbled old piece of it, shit. It did not look like Flair's last match. From the arena, he was there for it. You know, he probably can only do like <laughs> one of those every three years, <laughs> but like he still fucking did it, and it was awesome. And then, know? and then, did, is did Dragon have his last match this year, or is it is it still to be booked? Well, he had a comeback match with FTR like last month. Now I haven't actually seen it. I would. Um, but like I remember watching Flair's last match, and there's something different about Flair coming back to wrestle a match versus Steamboat at this the point Flair, in their life. Yeah, the Flair thing is much sadder. You know what I mean? It is it's like a like Flair almost died like last year, where <laughs> he was like in the ICU, and people were like, "Yeah, Ric Flair is gonna die," and now here he is. And also, like that match was so depressing because he just like bled everywhere and like was mm-hmm. obviously like didn't know where he was and it was the saddest it was so ever. scary i could not i had to look it up and watch it because i was like this is going to be this is just I, I, this is it, it was bewildering to see that he was willing to do that and but yeah. it's a different when it's flair but when it's like St- uh, steve austin or when it's steamboat like at this point in their careers it, it, it you the the testament to their ring psychology is yeah. uh it, that shows you how good they really are. Yeah, it was it was sad shit. But like when Steamboat does it, you know, it's different because like Steamboat, like you know, he was he was broken down when he retired. He would retire not long after this. I mean, this was one of his last matches on TV. Really, he he retired like within the next couple of months. This mm-hmm. is one of his last like pay per view matches. You know, and he was. He was, you know, like, you know, he, he had had some injuries and then, you know, he got, you know, infamously Bischoff fired him like through the mail while he was injured without even like talking to him. Um, and then he retired like, but, you know, he is like universally respected, still shows up every now and then and looks like he's in really good shape. Like everyone likes and respects him. Remember, he came back, had a run in like, what was it, 2009? With like, Jericho? A- yeah, with Jericho, still looked like he could go at a decent level, you know, like, was, like, still pretty good. And then, like, 
when he like come, like he came back and had like a one-off match. Yeah, it was him and FTR. Um, I'm looking at it right now. I haven't actually seen the match, but it was him and FTR against Jay Lethal, Nick Aldis, and Brock Anderson, Arn's son, um, at an indie show. And like by all accounts, like Steamboat didn't do that much, but the things he did looked good, and he physically looked great, and his arm drag still is the best arm drag of all time. So it's like, yeah, like there's no bad vibes there. None. It's like, yeah, hey. you don't. You're not worried that he's gonna die in the ring. Yeah, all the vibes are great when Ricky Steamboat shows up. When Ric Flair <laughs> shows up, all the vibes are very sad. All of a sudden, you know. So, so yeah, big respect to Ricky Steamboat, one of the preeminent fucking workers who ever lived. Um, yeah, it's just such a it's such a contrast because of like. Steamboat Flair is, like, the, like, in-ring rivalry of, like, all time. Like, maybe up until, like, Kenny and Okada, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and, yeah, their lives lives have gone in very different directions. Speaking of other different directions, uh, this next match. Well, first off, we have, uh, backstage, we have a promo where Arn Anderson is, uh, and the stud stable are celebrating Arn joining the faction and the fact that they beat the shit out of Dustin. Um, <laughs> I love bunkhouse buck, uh, saying we're drinking beer and smoking cigars. <laughs> I love the way he said that. That was awesome. And, uh, Arn, Arn cuts this promo. And to be honest, like I'm sure it was a good promo because Arn was a really good promo. Still is a good promo. Um, get the I Glock think, promo. I think about the Glock promo all the time. That promo was legitimately great. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, fucking, you know, me and every other wrestler that I know, but especially myself, you know, would kill to be able to cut a promo like that memorable. And Arm just tossing these out when he's 70 years old. <laughs> <laughs> um, just, just lobbing these, lobbing these fucking grenades in there. Um, but Arm cuts this promo again. I'm sure it was a great promo. Um, but I couldn't focus on anything, uh, that he was saying because Terry Funk and Bunkhouse Buck are pouring beer on his head while he's cutting the promo. And he's starting to get, he's like getting noticeably kind of annoyed with it, but they keep <laughs> doing it. It's really fun. <laughs> really segment here. Um, so next up, yeah, uh, real change of pace. So we got two fucking terrific workers having a really good match. Then we go to 20 minutes of basically nothing. It's WCW Tag Team Title Match. It is the champions, Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan, accompanied by his brother Dave, who, if I remember correctly, the gimmick with Dave was that he was dyslexic. But I think somebody that in the WCW office, whoever came up with the idea, didn't know what dyslexia means. Dyslexia doesn't mean that you're mentally challenged. No. It means that you have trouble reading. And, you know, you fl- you flip you flip letters around as you're reading, and you can something that you can overcome and be able to you know, you know, end up being able to to read. Like if you get it diagnosed and you work on it, you can be completely fine. Uh, but like they basically like the the gimmick with Dave Sullivan was like he was dyslexic, and that basically in their minds made him like a mental patient, which was just like it's one of the it's generally one of the most insensitive gimmicks of all time. And he was a big Hogan fan. Yeah, and he was wearing a Hulkamania shirt. So, hey, you know, Dave Sullivan is very excited for the Hulkster's uh, arrival. So you would figure this match, so it is Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan defending the title against the team of Pretty Wonderful, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff and his young charge, Pretty Paul Roma. 
Um, famous they, Horseman, Paul Roma. Yeah, I think this was after he was in the Horseman. He had a brief run in the Horseman, 91, 92 or so. Um, I've always liked Paul Orndorff, but this right. is like, yeah, this is, you know, you see Orndorff in this match. This He had retired for a while. He had suffered a serious, like, nerve injury in his arm, and it became like a thing where, like, when you look at him, noticeably one of his arms is way bigger than the other one. Yeah. Doesn't really do a whole lot in this match. Um, you figure with these guys. So Roma is a solid athlete. He could do a couple things, but wasn't a great worker. Orndorff is old, has suffered some serious injuries. Kevin Sullivan, also pretty old, shaped like a fire hydrant. You know, <laughs> not a great worker in his time. An old friend of my dad, interestingly enough, Kevin Sullivan. Heard nothing but good things about him as a guy. Big gym dude. Yeah, big gym dude. Um, but uh, you would figure in this one, Cactus Jack, Mick Foley, he's the guy that's going to carry this one, right? No. Wrong. Not really. The issue with this one is a couple of weeks before, Cactus Jack had suffered a serious back injury in a match in ECW against Sabu. Um, so... He can't do as much. I mean, normally you would expect in a match like this, like a lot of, you know, Mick Foley has his shit that he does, especially as Cactus Jack, WCW in the 90s. He's taking bumps off the apron. He's taking bumps off the top rope. He's taking bumps onto the concrete. He's taking bumps from the top rope onto the concrete. He's going to fly through the announce table. He's going to sacrifice every single bit of his body to make this motherfucker work because he is Mick goddamn Foley. But he kind of can't really do that in this one because he's sort of physically unable to. You don't really get the stuff that you are accustomed to with Mick. I, I don't. I don't think he bumps in this match at all. Maybe like once. Um, that kind of leaves Kevin Sullivan to carry the match, and that's not a great thing, ladies and gentlemen. Um, match is mostly slow brawling and guys working holds. It goes on forever. It's very boring. Don't really have a lot of notes for this one because not a whole lot happens. Um, the champions get. A lot. They, they work over Paul Orndorff for a long time. Fans are doing the wave. Never a good sign. Time. They seem to be having a good time. They're not paying attention to this match. Hell, I'm honestly barely paying attention to this match. Orndorff hits his pile driver on Kevin Sullivan, but Dave on the floor puts Kevin's foot on the ropes to break up the pin. We get uh, some Roma stuff. Roma hits a body slam. He goes up. So Roma, the spot where he tries to go up to the top rope, and then he slips. <laughs> and he's like, okay. Like, he slips and falls off the top rope. And then he's like, okay. And then he goes back up to the top rope. Hits a diving elbow for a two count on Kevin. Um, eventually, you know, they, they beat up Sullivan some more. Uh, at this point in my notes, I write, God, can this fucking match. <laughs> eventually tag in Cactus Shack again. Uh, Mick is debilitated right now, coming off back injury. Uh, he does a few basic moves. He hits his double arm DDT finisher on Paul Orndorff, but the ref is distracted by Kevin Sullivan and Paul Roma also kind of getting into it in the ring. Sullivan clotheslines Roma to the floor, um, so he misses the pin. Uh, you know, Cactus Jack has Orndorff pin. Uh, Jack gets up, he goes to hit the ropes, but then Roma trips him and holds. Cactus Jack's feet down as Paul Orndorff pins him and the team of pretty wonderful, even though like it looked like from the vantage point, the ref was that he very easily could have seen uh, Paul Roma holding down the, 
holding down uh, Cactus Jack's leg so he couldn't kick out. Uh, but he counts the pin. And pretty wonderful. Paul Orndorff and Paul Roma are the tag champions in a very dull 20 minutes and 11 seconds. Now, look, I love the tag team pretty wonderful because it just clicks. Everything about that tag team clicks. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I enjoy. Sometimes you just need guys that have the I'm hot gimmick. Like, I am physically attractive. Kevin Sullivan looks like a fire hydrant. It's a built-in story. It's easy to do. It's easy to tell. Like, look at what Pretty Deadly does in NXT. I love watching Pretty Deadly matches, and I love all their promos. You just need a tag team like that. Pretty Deadly are much better workers than these guys. Oh, easily much better workers, but I'm not, we're in the 90s. I'm considering work, I grade work rate on a curve, and character work goes a long way. Uh, but, yeah, so we agree that D'Lo Brown – uh, has the highest PER of any guy of any era for any wrestling, correct? Yes, like highest, highest level of like being fucking cool as hell to screen time ratio ever. I yeah. think I so I think we can officially state that the metric or the the grading curve goes from D'Lo Brown to Kevin Sullivan. Yes, like <laughs> like like in terms of like PER, right? Yeah, like like D'Lo Brown is like. Like like Luka Doncic, in, like small and, sample size, fifty PR. Like, can he do this over a longer period of time? Yeah, and Kevin Sullivan is like, what? He's he's what? He's Two. like fucking like twenty sixteen Jan Mahimi. There you go, perfect. Yeah, it's rough, you know. I I just again, I've I've heard very very good things about him as a guy, uh, but um, just I. I the, I, like Kevin Sullivan was was worked in the booking office. He was the booker for WCW for a long time. Um, I guess he always made sure he was on these pay per views. He always was making sure that he was getting a lot of fucking screen time. You know what I mean? And I, so through like doing this podcast, we've seen a fair number of Kevin Sullivan matches. And the only one I even kind of remember was the Benoit one, the Benoit one where and that was because they fought in the bathroom and Benoit was throwing toilet paper at him, you know, because that was really funny. But like that, they're all kind of like this, they're all long and slow and dull. Yeah. And that's it. And that's I, yeah. At least pretty wonderful looks better with the gold than Kevin Sullivan. Yeah, I, I do feel like we were robbed a little bit because, God, I love me some Cactus Jack. Love me everything that that, that Mick Foley did. But, you know, we're, we're kind of robbed of, uh, of a Mick Foley performance because, uh, you know, I, I guarantee you, knowing the way that, that Mick operated back then, he was going to do everything he could to make this shit sandwich something into, into something, you know? And I would have liked to see him try, but he just he wasn't physically up for it at this point. You know, coming off of the back injury, this, this time was not physically up for it. Um, so yeah, we get a we get a boring ass match. But now it is time. The dream match is here. Hogan Flair main event. Ric Flair, the defending WCW World Heavyweight Champion, is here to greet the Hulkster. And show him what it's like where the big boys play, WCW. Hogan's first match since jumping over to the WWF. Um, we have, and, and, and they have all the fucking heat in this match. Michael Buffer comes out. He does the intros. 
He intros uh, the commissioner of WCW, the great Nick Bockwinkle, comes out looking sharp in a tuxedo, and then introduces the hometown star, the all-NBA center for the Orlando Magic. Shaquille O'Neal is in the house. He gets Loudest pop of the night. One of the biggest pops of the night goes to Shaq, obviously. I mean, Shaq in 94. Orlando Shaq. I mean, he was something to fucking behold. This was when Shaq was literally ripping down the basket, you know? Um, and they get in the ring, and we see Shaq. There's like a brief shot of Shaq and Nick Bockwinkle, like, talking to each other in the ring. And I was just, I said in this view, I was like, God damn, you know, like random assortment of people having a conversation. The most random pairing of people in history to have ever spoken to one another. <laughs> Nick Bockwinkle and Shaquille O'Neal. I just like that completely, completely fucked my brain. Some, imagine imagine if the name was switching with Shaquille Bockwinkle. Dude, Shaquille Bockwinkle. That's a fuck. <laughs> that's a name. I, I should take that. I that's should, a D D name. <laughs> I, I should take the name Shaquille Bockwinkle. That fucking rule. Um, that's a, that's a legit good gimmick name right there. That is a great name, actually, uh, shit. Heel <laughs> Bockwinkle, fuck, dude. I'm gonna have to switch some shit up. I, don't, I might have to get a new gimmick, dude. Um, but yes, we get, Flair comes out as the champion, comes out first, which, again, I don't normally like, but considering the whole deal is Hogan's arrival, I, I get Hogan coming out second here. Flair coming out with Sherry. Very, very big reaction for him. And it's a mixed reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people cheering him. A lot of Hulkamaniacs in there booing him because they're they're here for Hogan. Uh, but a big reaction of, of, of a mixed uh, variety for Flair. Hogan comes out. The crowd goes crazy for Erupts. Hogan. He gets a big fireworks display on his entrance. He comes out accompanied by Jimmy Hart. Accompanied by Mr. T, gets in the ring, high five Shaq. You know, everyone's going crazy. Um, Michael Buffer, in his ring introduction, compares this match to the moon landing and very noticeably struggles with sounding out the last name of Buzz Aldrin. He does a real, like, like you when you graduated, the Albert Angelo and Gleesa. Angelo. <laughs> He's like, Buzz, I- I- I'll. Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> like he had to sound out. He didn't know how to say Buzz Aldrin's name. I'll be honest. There's a moment on this podcast where I was struggling to figure out how to pronounce Ventura. I was like, how do I say it again? I forgot. Buzz Ventura is significantly less famous than Buzz Aldrin. Like, <laughs> but like, seriously? Are you serious? Like, come on. Like, I, I don't know. That, that really blew my mind. Um, but here we are. We finally have the dream match. Hogan Flair. They wrestle around a little to start the match. Hogan has his one neat, uh, like, chain trick where he'd do, like, a kind of arm drag takeover where he would, like, stick his stick his foot in the guy's armpit and flip him over into an arm bar. He does that. Um, Flair sells around the ring for him. Ric Flair, you know, say what you will about him. In the ring, this is a guy who always understood the assignment. He is here to get Hogan over. You know, not that Hogan needs to be put over ever, you know, but Hogan is here to be put over. And Flair sells around the ring for him. Flair, amazing at selling for a baby face. Hogan just bumps him everywhere. He's hiding behind Sherry at ringside. Um, Some great character work by Flair in this match. Great character work by Flair. Great work by Sherry as well on the floor. Oh, yeah. Great in this match. Um, Eventually, 
you know, it's sort of the classic Hogan formula. Hogan looks strong at the beginning, but then the manager does something dastardly and allows the heel to take over. That happens here. Uh, Hogan hits the ropes. Cherry grabs the leg. As he turns around to confront her, Flair attacks him from behind. Um, and we get, you know, Flair gets some heat for a while. Um, there's a spot where Sherry's about to hit him with a chair on the floor, but Jimmy Hart grabs the chair away from her. Um, Hogan fires back. There's a bunch of spots where, you know, Hogan fights back a lot in this match. Um, he hits Flair with a bunch of chops at one point. He fires up. He, uh, whips Flair into the corner. Flair does his, people call it the Flair exit, where you just like, you know, where you roll out for over the, over the ropes. I, something that I can never fucking do fluidly at all. I suck at this. It looks, it looks terrifying as hell to do. I can't believe he does it as smoothly as he does every time. It's not terrifying to do. It's just, I don't know. I'm not athletic enough to do it smoothly, really. Uh, the flare, flare flies over, lands on the apron, um, and Hogan clotheslines him and he falls to the floor. Hits him with a back suplex on the floor, suplexes him back into the ring. He goes for the big leg drop to finish this one early, but misses... Um, Flair starts going for the figure four. Hogan keeps fighting out of the figure four. He, uh, kicks him away a couple times. At one point, he reverses it into a cradle for a two count. Um, one commentary moment right around here that really annoyed the shit out of me. Hogan, uh, Bobby Heenan says Hogan hasn't wrestled in two or three years, which that's a blatant lie, like a complete, like, like he was WWF champion the year before. Like, it's just like, <laughs> what? I, I, I don't know who he thought he was fooling with that. Um, but we have a spot where Flair suplexes him and then Hogan completely no-sells it. It stands up, fires up on Flair again, hits the three punches, hits the big boot, goes for the pin after the big boot. Looks like he's going to get the pit. Uh, but Sherry pulls the referee out of the ring and throws him into the barricade, which... That sounds like it should be a DQ to me, but the, the, there's no ref. There's no ref out there. She hits Jimmy Hart with her shoe. Um, Flair, you know, Hogan is standing there watching all this happen. Flair comes up behind him and chop blocks the leg out from underneath him. Flair, di or, uh, Sherry dives off the top rope. It's a top rope splash on Hogan. We get a new ref in the ring. Um, Flair gets hit, uh, Hogan in the figure four. Hogan is able to get to the ropes, um, but we have the spot where Hogan's like at the ropes, but then Sherry pulls up one of her like one of her like pantyhose or whatever the fuck, or like stockings or whatever, and is choking Hogan with the stocking um, while he's like in the figure four. Um, Flair keeps going after the leg um, again. Hogan, but we have like four different Hogan no selling like fire ups. There's so many of them. So many of them. We have another one where he starts no selling all of his punches and chops. Runs into a back elbow though in the corner, goes down, bumps in the middle of the ring. That leads to Sherry going up top again for another big splash. She misses. Flair then goes up while Sherry's lying there in the middle of the ring. And then Hogan grabs him, throws him off the top rope. He puts Ric Flair in the figure four. Uh, Sherry gets up on the apron. Hogan lets it go, goes over to Sherry. We have a spot where Mr. T like grabs Sherry and like finally hauls her off. Mr. T literally picks Sherry up and carries her to the back and removes her from the from the action. But in the middle of all this, Sherry is able to slip 
a set of brass knuckles to Ric Flair. And while the referee is distracted by all this nonsense, Ric Flair drops Hogan with the brass knuckles. Huge fucking brass knuckle punch. And Hogan kicks out at two. And we finally get the ultimate Hulk up. Three punches, whip, big boot, leg drop, one, two, three. Hulk Hogan is the WCW champion. Big crowd reaction. You know, he plays the hits. Uh, fans love it. He wins the WCW title. 21 minutes, 50 seconds. Fireworks go off. Hogan poses. Hogan must pose, of course. Um, oh, yeah, brother. Celebrates with Shaq. Celebrates with Mr. T. Um, and he also he cuts a promo backstage surrounded by all these guys. You know, he's got uh, Jack Hacksaw Jim Duggins back there. He's with Pillman. He's with Johnny B. Bad. He's got Inoki there. He's got Masa Saito there. He cuts this big you know, celebratory promo at the end, uh, backstage with me, Gene. Um, says, Polkamania is more powerful than it's ever been. What's WCW going to do now that the Hulkster still rules? And he does a, he, he adds a woo at the end. We got a Hulkster woo. The thing is with this match, even with all the Hoganism in it, uh, it was still a fun match. A lot of that has to be with the crowd. Um, it was fun. Like Flair, I love Flair. Flair in the ring is never not hit for me. This um, is honestly one of the better Hogan matches you'll see. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with Flair because, um, yeah. like, the way I, I look at it is like this is a very interesting dynamic between Flair and Hogan because Flair is probably as close to a Smarks wrestler as it gets that has gotten that big because of how good he is in the ring with his in-ring psychology. And then you have Hogan, who is the quintessential WWF superhero. A lot of this match kind of plays like Superman versus Lex Luthor. Uh, just – it just, I don't think that's a bad. I don't think that's a bad take there. No, I, wow, thank you. That means it is good uh, because normally I get shot down whenever I compare shit like that. Uh, but Hogan just—it seems like nothing that Flair does to Hogan actually matters unless it's done cheaply. Whenever Flair is fighting Hogan straight up, Hogan no sells, and whenever Flair can get an angle on him, that's when it has some impact. Yeah. Um, so it was. I, it, it was it was a good story with that regard. Um, I loved Sherry in this match. Sherry just taunting the hell out of Hogan and playing a role. Um, she did amazing. It was, again, really good. The chops on Hogan's chest were always impeccable. The sound that that made, the flare chops on Hogan's chest. Yeah. E- echo in my brain. There is a reason that people woo when you chop people. Exactly. There's a reason. I love the missed leg drop into the figure four attempt into the roll up fit uh, near fall because that because that all made perfect sense. Like, oh, he missed the leg drop. That's a perfect time to slap on a leg submission. Oh, he countered the leg submission into a, a pin attempt. And then when he puts on the figure four, I'm like, oh, shit, they got me. They got me with that finish. They they get they got me uh, peeking. I'm like, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the finish. Obviously, it's not. Um, but then, like, at the end, the last ho- Hulk up. With he kicks out of the brass knucks at two, he immediately hulks up and goes super saiyan, and then that like again the match just kind of, it ends right there. It's just like man, I really wish they could draw out these ho- like these finishes just a little bit longer because with Hogan it always feels like oh though he the heels on top, the heels on top, and then Hogan wins. Yeah, I actually uh, really 
thinking about it more, I actually do really like the comparison to Superman versus Lex Luthor here. Because I, if I remember correctly, I'm not a huge you know, comic guy or anything. Neither am I. But was it, I, I think the whole point of Lex Luthor was the fact that physically he was just a guy. You know, he doesn't have any superpowers, but his his threateningness comes from how he's how intelligent he is and how and much he money he has. He becomes a a a, a, a compelling uh, arch nemesis to Superman because he can't compete with Superman on you know sheer you know brawn and power because nobody can because he's fucking Superman and he knows that. So he looks for other ways to. So he doesn't even try. He looks for other ways to to even the score, and that's what makes him dangerous, right? And that's kind of it with Flair. I mean, that's one of the reasons why Flair was so good, uh, and that's one of the reasons why the dynamic with like so many of Ric Flair's best matches, um, it, like some of the best dynamics that he had were with guys like Lex Luger, right? Where it was like, you know, a given that there was no way that Ric Flair, who is physically average, right? Is well, now after the neck injury or the, his back injury, maybe oh, yeah. pr- maybe pre-Flair, that if there's a universe where Flair does not get in a plane crash, maybe we don't feel the same way about him being the dirtiest player in the game. Maybe, yeah. some, maybe some of that plane crash injury lingering, shortening of Flair and making him a smaller guy plays into that uh, dirtiest player in the game working so well. Yeah. But like, you know, who knows? But obviously like Ric Flair for a pro wrestler, especially at this time, physically not impressive in, a, in an age of like everyone's a fucking body guy and everyone's huge and everyone's jacked. Like Ric Flair wasn't really any of those things. Ric Flair wasn't an incredible athlete, right? Like so many of his best dynamics I felt were with guys like Luger where it was taken as a given like, yeah, you know that Ric Flair isn't going to be able to physically contend with this guy because this guy's a freak of nature. But the thing that makes Ric Flair so dangerous is that he knows that. And so he's going to look for, he's not even going to try and win that way. He's going to try and find every single little edge that he can because he's the dirtiest player in the game and he's smarter than everybody. And that's that's sort of like, like you know, because Hulk Hogan is like the quintessential Superman of wrestling. The quintessential Superman of wrestling. And that makes Ric Flair have to be the Lex Luthor. And you see it in this match. He like, tries everything. Tries every single one of the dirty tricks. He and Sherry try every single one of the dirty tricks to get one over on Hogan. But at the end of the day, Superman always beats Lex Luthor. Everyone idolizes Hogan because they know they can never be him. But everyone looks at Flair and respects Flair because Flair felt... The lavish lifestyle, notwithstanding, but Flair felt achievable. Yeah. Nobody could be, ever be Hogan. Hogan was a force of nature that was just, just different than everything else. But who knows? Maybe, maybe you could be Flair. Because again, Flair wasn't an incredible athlete. He felt human. Yeah. He wasn't, uh, he, he was, yeah. Flair, you know, like, again, Hogan is six foot seven, largest arms in the world, this, you know, insane physical freak. You're not going to be Hogan. But you look at Flair, you can see Flair and be like, shit, I I could be that guy. He doesn't look that much different from my, you know, my fucking neighbor, you know, (laughs) or whatever, you know, like, he's a guy. 
he, you know, he got to where he was because he was a, uh, you know, I mean, obviously incredibly charismatic, one of the best promos of all time, but he just developed this incredible sense of timing and storytelling and, and, and ring craft, you know, um, never did anything that was super, you know, not an insane athlete, not, not a guy that did anything like any, you know, high spots that were incredible or anything, but just a guy who knew what the fuck to do in the ring. Yeah, you look at his move pool. There's nothing that's super like you have to be super strong for. There's nothing you have to be super quick for. There's nothing that you have to be super agile for. It's all very much uh, safe and sound, feet on the ground, smart tactical th- ring work. There's nothing. Yeah. There's nothing crazy in it. Safe and sound, feet on the ground, except for when he would try to come off the top rope and eat shit, <laughs> uh, as he always did, because he beat Harley Race for the NWA title for the first time. With a diving cross body, so every other match he ever had, he tried to do a diving cross body, and he missed every other, every single other time that he ever <laughs> attempted it. Which is one of my favorite little like like flare stories. Uh, it just really fucking works. So yeah, really good man. I mean, this is honestly like there is so much Hoganism in here, um, and yeah, you have a bunch of like. Yeah, you have like multiple like no selling Hulk up fire up shit. Too many, just too many. Too many, probably. But honestly, the 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 effort, the pure effort from Flair, the effort from Sherry, and you know the the crowd being so hot for Hogan makes the match work. I I really think this is one of the better Hogan matches you'll see. Really, Um, like the match, like the match. So that'll bring us to our two and a half marks. Angelo, start us off, please. Uh, obvious one starting off, negative half mark, going to Kevin Sullivan in matches over 10 minutes. We don't need that much Kevin Sullivan on the pay-per-view. Uh, I get he had a mind for the business. I get that he was a booker. And I do think that typically he put the business before himself. Hell, he booked his own divorce. The but, man did famously book his own divorce. Which but, is insane that that happened, but he did. But... The guy just wasn't a good worker in the ring. There's never anything he did in the ring that was super captivating. The way you remember Kevin Sullivan is for the character work, which I will appreciate him for. But everything else is just kind of blah. And I did not need a 20-minute Kevin Sullivan get generates a ton of heat by getting beat up spot yeah. uh, in my pay-per-view. So we're going to start off with that negative half mark. It's, um, really, it's a really bad bad vibe when it's like it's cactus jack and kevin sullivan and then you end up <laughs> out of the two kevin sullivan ends up having to be the one who's in the in the ring the whole time yeah not great not, not great uh my one mark is going to being able to pinch hit jesse the body ventura for bobby the brain Heaton. i love the, the how different it is i understand jesse was only there for the paycheck and he was on his way out but even the moments that he did speak i love his commentary he's got a great voice for commentary um also, I love the difference. Like you have the going from the brain to the body to back to the brain. I kind of love that parallel. And you know, it, it but the brain is just one of the best commentators of the time. I always enjoy him whenever we get these WCW events. He rarely ever has a bad commentary night. And so, just having solid commentary there with Shivani. Again, those two man booths. I just feel like our two man booths are just the way to go. I think three man can get kind of messy. Um, so give me that one mark for just being able to pinch it Jesse the body whenever you need him. And then two marks. It's going to a main event that is a main event. 
Hogan Flair. I mean, that that's all you need to say. Hogan Flair. That felt huge. The crowd treated it as huge. They got celebrities in. There's so much star power in that uh in the arena that night. And it really did feel like a huge experience that was probably incredible to go to. Um, and whenever you have a main event that feels like that, I cannot wait for Reigns Owens because of how they've built that up. That's going to be an incredible main event. Just stuff like that. Whenever you can actually effectively build a main event that makes a ton of sense, that has a ton of heat, that is going to be a barn burner, which this was. Uh, it's That's how wrestling is great. That's when wrestling is at its finest. So two marks to a main event that is a main event. Sure. I'm going to give my half mark to uh, – I, I, I purposely I, – I wrote this guy down in my notes, but I purposely didn't mention him because I decided to mention him uh, in, the, in the half mark. The guy who was doing the Hogan cosplay who was behind Tony Schiavone. The whole <laughs> that guy ruled. That guy had the whole thing down. Shout out to that guy. Yeah, if you go back and watch Bash of the Beach 1994, there is a guy doing a Hogan cosplay – um, who is right behind Tony Schiavone in the first row. And he's got the tan. He's got the bald fucking long hair. Um, he's got the fucking Fu Manchu. He's got the whole gimmick. He, uh, that, guy, that guy rules. Um, I'm going to give a one mark to watching Terry Funk sell. I love, I love watching him sell. Especially like the Terry Funk does the like, like, Oh, I'm like dazed, kind of wobbling and stumbling around like cell. It's fucking hilarious every single time. You know, there's one point in the match where he like, like Dustin hits him with something like Dustin's like going two on one with him and Buck. And like he hits Buck with something Buck bumps. And then like he hits Funk and Funk is dazed and he's stumbling around. And then he's like, he's so confused, like so shaken up by this shot to the head that he tries to pin Buck. (laughs) <laughs> you know every single time Funk I just I die watching him sell he's so fucking funny um, and I'm getting my two marks to the hardest working woman in show business Sensational Sherry um, when you consider the idea that the uh, like the, the fact that the idea of the manager at ringside especially for a heel is to do all the shortcuts do all the dirty tricks do everything that they can to help their person win who does more consistently than sherry sherry is always fucking all over the place doing fucking everything she works harder on the fucking outside than a lot of wrestlers do in their actual matches yeah um she does a lot she (laughs) this multiple diving splashes in this main event like she is just she is front and center at all times doing everything she can to give Ric Flair an edge against Hulk Hogan, which in a match against Superman, you need someone, you know, you probably you need, need kryptonite. Well, you know, you're not going to turn down that help. And she's doing every single thing she can to try and help Ric Flair win. Cause that's her job. That's why Ric Flair has her out there. It's, it's, it's to help him win the match. And she is working her ass off to help him win that match. Love watching Sherry. One of the all time, just great, managers in wrestling especially in terms of like yeah like at ringside man she works her ass off every single time you see it love it r.i.p sensational sherry one of the greats so that will wrap up our coverage of bash at the beach 1994 so 
What's the schedule coming up? Are we are we doing another one next week? We're, we're doing we're doing another one next week. We're gonna have a market down the week after and the week after that because I'll be out of town again. Okay. Too much travel. So we do have one more full episode coming next week. And David, I want some NXT. Oh fuck! I haven't even started doing that. Hey. Pretend you didn't just say that. Hey, I'm gonna hit the randomizer and find out what we're gonna be watching next week on the show. Angelo, what is it that you would like? I would like to get some NXT up in my grill. I also, again, shout out to Twitter at the number two and a half marks. Give us a follow on there. We're popping off now that David is a pro wrestler and has been working some matches and is good shit. Oh, you want some NXT? Well. Fuck you! You're you're not getting that. We are uh, going back, staying in WCW, fast forwarding ahead a few years to WCW sold out 1998, January of 1998, featuring this one. We had a WWF superstar making their in-ring debut in WCW against Ric Flair. That time it was Hulk Hogan. And we're doing the exact same thing in this one. It's Bret Hart making huh. ECW in-ring debut against, yes, Ric Flair. And also, we have uh, main event Lex Luger and Randy Savage. That's interesting. I can't imagine that match was very good. We got Kevin Nash versus uh, the Giants. Um, Jericho versus Rey Mysterio, but that was really good. Seeing, seeing as the attendance here is under 6,000, I can't imagine this is going to be... I have low expectations going in. Yeah, this is the first pay-per-view after the uh, rollicking disaster that was uh, Starcade 97 with the Sting-Hogan payoff that just pissed everyone the fuck off. <laughs> um, so yeah, after that, like just like legendary piece of just like disastrous booking. Where does WCW go from there? We're going to find out next time on the Two and a Half Marks podcast. WCW sold out 1998. So, for my good friend Angela Lisa, my name is David Stafford. Thanks, everybody.